House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. All right, you are back in the House of Mystery, and uh, for the interview, we have the author of A Murder in My Hometown, Rebecca Morris. Thank you for being here. Well, thank you, Ellen Joy. I look forward to talking to you. Well, yeah, now, this is quite the book. Um, how did you get involved in this story and enough to make you actually want to write a book? Well, uh, my um, <laughs> 50th high school reunion was looming, and, uh, you know, I've, I've written... Um, uh, seven other tr true crime books in the last uh, decade or so. And I just got to thinking about how I remembered from my childhood and my teenage years that a classmate was uh, murdered when I was a senior in high school. And it had, as we knew, never been, and as far as we knew, it had never been solved. And so I decided to look into it. Um, there, I decided to look into it. There were really no family members uh, left of boy, but uh, I couldn't have done a book unless the the man who was the district attorney in Cavallis, Oregon at, at this time uh, was still around, and also the two original detectives. Because you do, you know, it's nice to have some original sources when you're working on a story. So the story was in 1967 in Cavallis, Oregon, which is a, a college town, that a, a classmate of mine was found in the Willamette River at that point, the most, you know, one of the most polluted rivers in North America. And um, what happened over a series of a few weeks is they determined he'd been to a, a party the night before and had never arrived home. In 1967 and 68, of course, there weren't the forensic tools that there are uh, today and uh, they never made an arrest uh, they had a suspect uh, but it just kind of lingered when I began to look at this in uh, 2017 I have always gone back to my hometown over the years because my parents were still there for many years but I went back and started you know talking to other classmates and realized that there was a, a, a good number of us who thought that the case had never been solved because this boy, Dick Kitchell, was from the other side of the tracks in Corvallis. And Corvallis was very much split between those of us who were the children of college professors, as I was, and then the others who you know had working-class backgrounds. And so I just decided to look into it and... And I thought there was enough of a story and a universal story that you know, I've heard people all over the world who said, you know, that could have been my hometown. Something like that happened when I was a teenager. And uh, so that it might have some appeal to people who don't live in Oregon. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting. And, and I think we, uh, you mentioned this, and we should mention it to the listeners about the... Uh, um, 1967 was quite a year, um, you know, for all of the things going on with the Vietnam War and the uh, presidential campaigns, uh, Martin Luther King and Robert Kennedy uh, being shot. 
Um, that really had the attention of most of the people, too, didn't it? Well, it did. And that became, you know, a, a pretty pivotal angle for me, frankly, in in framing this story, is that 1967-68, when this played out, was, um, well, uh, Lyndon Johnson, who was president, called it the nightmare year uh, because of Vietnam, because of uh, later in the summer in 68, the uh, protests of the Democratic National Convention, uh, the assassination of King, the assassination of Bobby Kennedy, who'd just been campaigning in Corvallis a few days before he was assassinated in, in Los Angeles. Uh, he was campaigning for the, the primary in Oregon. And a number of us had been to see him and, you know, had our first march, you know, after King was assassinated. And America just kind of exploded in 1968 and I guess it became a kind of metaphor for me as far as how America was changing and how this college town changed yeah yeah pretty pretty uh, definite times what what did you know about um, this uh, Dick uh, Kitchell was he a popular kid was he um like, you know, like, what what do we know about him? Mm-hmm. Well, we went to different grade schools, and in Corvallis, like many other hometowns, you know, what grade school you went to sort of determines who your friends are for the rest of your life, or certainly through, through high school. But uh, we were at the same junior high school, and I know he was in a class or two of mine. He tended to, in uh, high school, take... Um, the more uh, a different kind of class, not not college placement classes, which a lot of us were in. He was taking shop classes, which which is great. You know, he was uh, going a different path. He wasn't, you know, uh, he wasn't a scholarly boy. But he'd been, you know, he was a nice kid as a child. And I talked to many many friends of his, you know, particularly boys who'd lived in his neighborhood and rode bikes with him, who were in Cub Scouts with him, who were on Little League baseball teams with him, who still to this day, you know, more than 50 years later, refer to him as Dickie, his childhood name. They still call him Dickie. And he was a sweet kid. He had a different, difficult childhood. His parents had been divorced. He was an only child. He was shuttled back and forth between... Olympia, Washington, where his mother uh, moved back to her hometown, and then his father in Corvallis. There were stepmothers, numerous stepmothers. There were step-siblings. I think he kind of got lost in the shuffle. His father owned a shoe repair shop in Corvallis, um, very much, uh, you know, working class. And uh, I remember seeing Dick changed you know i saw him from a distance at junior high and high school and when he became you know one of the tough kids you could you could see it and you could see it in who he was hanging out with uh you could see it in uh you know the cowboy boots he wore and the favorite jacket that he never took off and just just looking tough you know smoking <laughs> sneaking cigarettes and and I learned an awful lot during this doing this book about the parties 
that he and his group went to, which I had I had no clue that you know you could find a party with alcohol that uh, people in their twenties would throw for high school students, and you know they'd slip the hosts a few dollars uh, for the alcohol. Uh, I was probably home, you know, doing my homework. <laughs> yeah. But um, he he was well liked, and he actually had friendships across many groups. He was dating a cheerleader. Her parents wouldn't let her actually go out and date, but he was allowed to come over to their house and they'd sit on the couch and talk. Uh, But he also, you know, had uh, some girlfriends that could ride in his car with him and go to parties. And, and, uh, but he was, you know, he had friends in, in kind of all the populations that you find, you know, in a high school. Yeah. Well, so um, so after this, he went missing. Uh, what was the initial reaction in town? Um, did they did, were they scared so, that something happened, or did they just think, well, he's just you know gone somewhere? Well, it was uh, sort of shrugged off. His own father and stepmother shrugged it off and did not report him missing for several days to the police department because uh, Corvallis is just just about an hour from the Oregon coast and Dick was with, you know, sometimes with friends who they just would drive, you know, to the coast for uh, overnight or a day or two. And so his own father wasn't uh, too concerned. They finally went to the police department. There were certainly uh, rumors in town that... uh, you know, whatever happened, he got what he had coming. Mm-hmm. Uh, the He was known, and his family was known to the police department because they'd been to the Kitchell house to break up fights between he and his father. So his father was a suspect for, you know, a brief time. But uh, fairly quickly, they found that he'd been to this party on the last night he was seen, which was in October 67, and uh, they found that he'd, um, he didn't have his own car. He'd cracked it up in an accident a week or two before, so he needed a ride, and he and a couple other uh, boys had accepted a ride from an older man, being meaning in his 20s, who was at this party, and Dick was the last person that was allegedly dropped off uh, and uh, the driver, uh, Doug Hamblin, said that he left Dick downtown Corvallis, that he was going to walk the rest of the way home or something. And so he was uh, an early suspect and, and a long-time uh, suspect. But basically they needed to find out, did Dick, ever, did Dick ever get home that evening or had he disappeared that night? And, of course, they didn't know for 11 days until his body surfaced in the Willamette River that he'd been murdered. Uh, So by the time they were looking at suspects and looking at the car he rode in and and the place where there'd been the party, you know, it was kind of... Any evidence was gone, if there ever was any evidence. Right. And when they did look at the guy's car... You know, it was 11, 12 days later, and, you know, they didn't seize it like they would today. And, uh, you know, there one 
forensics was was still uh, pretty elementary, uh, so there was nothing, really no evidence of what had happened. Mm. So when he was, um, his body was spotted, and and uh, people found you know found out that you know he was he's been murdered. Um, what was the reaction then? Was it any better, or was it still kind of well? You know, he's he's just uh, he was kind of not the best kid, so or he's from a poor part of town, so it didn't matter. Or well, there are big headlines. Murder was uh, an exceptional crime in Corvallis, so it was huge front page page news uh, for a few days, um, and uh, you know the headline was "Missing Prep Student Found Murdered." Well, prep student meaning something different than, you know, uh, just a, a high school class uh, yeah. student. Uh, so there, there was coverage in the local paper. Um, I remember very, very vividly that, uh, so he was found on a Saturday by uh, two boys who were fishing off a dock in the Willamette River, and his body had been submerged for eight or nine or ten days, and then, you know, uh, came to the surface and was, was floating. Uh, the Willamette River actually runs north, so he's floating up the river, and they spotted it and, and ran for help. Um, I remember very vividly that uh, two days later, on the first day of class, after his body was found on Monday, that it was announced on the public address system at the school. You know how every morning in every classroom yeah. in the high school in the school you could hear the same announcements and I don't remember that they used the word murdered but I remembered their mentioning that he'd been found dead which you know I don't think they would do that today and I was also very intrigued with thinking about how differently uh, you know today the media would go to the high school would interview his friends with you know with kind of help try to find out what had happened there would be counselors at the school wouldn't there there was yeah. nothing like that right. there was just this boy had been murdered the police came to the school and talked to some of his friends a lot of interviews were done you know away from the school it was just a, a very different time and uh, most people that I talked to said you know their parents didn't talk about it with them they, they didn't want to know, you know, how how his friends were reacting, and uh, the a lot of the students went to the funeral by themselves. Uh, I, I think, you know, the parents weren't just weren't very involved in this. Yeah, yeah, it's too bad. Um, now, how it, it, what did the police do in their investigation? Did they was it pretty thorough? Were they really involved in it, or did they just sort of kind of push it aside? Well, I think they gave it at all. They're all, and I looked. You know, I spent two years looking at it, and and uh, with you know talking to the original detectives, and and while Dick's friends might have felt that it wasn't really pursued because he was from the wrong side of the tracks. I found a lot of evidence that that wasn't true, that they gave it at all. They're all that they constantly, the, these two detectives constantly went back to the DA to say, you know, Let's, we think we have enough to bring charges. We know who did it. Uh, and, you know, then and now, 
prosecutors are pretty conservative about what cases they bring. They want to win. They know what uh, what juries will, uh, uh, you know, when they will indict and when they won't indict. Um, and the DA just didn't think that the the proof was there. There was an awful lot of, uh, you know, incriminating uh, evidence. And, uh, you know, the last person to see him, that's always important in a case, Doug Hamblin being the last person to see Dick and giving him the ride. And then things like, um, you know, Dick's parents said the first night, Where, where's his jacket, his beloved jacket he never took off. Well, it turned out it had been left in the suspect's car. He told police he didn't know who it belonged to. It was the size of a child. Dick was was uh, rather rather a smallish boy, even at age 17, and he'd given the code away. So they got back the code, and but uh, what they determined is that he'd been in a, a pretty good fist fight, and there'd been an altercation at the party house where he'd been, but you know he wasn't he wasn't wounded there, but that. At the time of his death, there'd been a, a fist fight, and then he'd been uh, strangled, not with bare hands, but with a piece of cloth, perhaps with the coat, uh, with somebody's elbow, um, and then he'd been, you know, put put in the river. Uh, so it certainly pointed to this last person who saw him, but the DA didn't think there was enough to bring uh, charges, but. Uh, they, it's true that the investigation, you know, slowed and finally kind of died off uh, within within a year of Dick's murder. Uh, they didn't have anywhere really to go with it. Uh, but I, I thought that they, you know, I could see from the original police report the, the extent they went to to talk to people, you know, and to uh, get. You know, to give to give polygraph tests. This this fellow who was the best suspect and was, uh, you know, uh, failed three polygraphs, mm-hmm. and you know, even in those days, that was pretty damning information. What? Yeah. What do we What do we know about that guy, Doug Hamlin? Like, a, what, was he a kind of a in a lot of trouble? Was he kind of a bad character, or do, was he uh, upstanding? Like, do we know anything? Well, we do. We know a lot, and I talked to a lot of people who who knew him. And one of his ex-wives was very, very forthcoming. So he had graduated from the same high school, or he had attended the same high school. I don't think he ever graduated. So he was he was uh, twenty-two to you know, to Dick's 17, and he'd already been married and divorced and and had a, an infant child. He'd, um, he'd been in some trouble himself with the police, He and he hung around, you know, these parties. Now, why these 20, mid-20-year-olds liked hanging out with 16, 17-year-olds? I, I don't know. I think what they had in common was, you know, was alcohol. Um, but Doug uh, uh, had had a um, a rather uh, unusual <laughs> childhood himself. You know, his mother had been married eight times, oh. twice 
to the same person, and uh, she was very uh, defensive of him, and he was very protective of her. Um, so he he'd had a lot of ups and downs, and ups and downs with, with jobs he had or lost. Um, and his mother sounds like Liz Taylor. Oh my God! Oh, she was she was actually a. <laughs> Quite a beloved character in Corvallis. She was a taxi dispatcher. She'd worked at some bars, and she was a rather well-known character. And then uh, Doug's uh, father, uh, who was you know, one of the many husbands, was also uh, kind of a character. My favorite story about him was that he'd lost his uh, driver's license because of you know DUIs and everything. So uh, one night he wanted to go down to the Peacock, the Peacock Tavern on 2nd Street in Corvallis, which is still there. And uh, so he drove his tractor, since he couldn't legally drive a car down there. <laughs> and he parked the tractor and, well, proceeded to get drunk and then was arrested driving the tractor away uh, from the tavern a few hours later and was represented by... The most famous, you know, defense attorney in Corvallis, and who who got him off. Uh, but I, you know, it's stories like that from the 1950s that that are just so colorful, you yeah. know, about it. Say so much about a, a small town. Yeah. And some of the people that in, that inhabited it. Uh, but it was, you know, what I really uh, loved about also doing this book is not all only looking into the mystery of what really happened to to Dick Kitchell, but you know, we all we grew up, he and I and the others. This was the you know the Cold War, and this is when in grade school, you know, we practiced death and cover exercises, and and uh, there was a good chance Corvallis was on uh, Russia's, uh, you know, uh, uh, map. Because we had a uh, an air force uh, station just ten miles outside of uh, town, uh, with uh, a lot of um, uh, radar and uh, uh, things that were important to the country at that time. It wasn't a base with you know uh, tens of thousands of soldiers and airplanes, but it it had uh, important uh, equipment to to. Be, be the place that would see rockets, you know, coming into the United States. So uh, it was a target, uh, uh, Adair. And um, it was just a, you know, it was just another time and place. It was a place with uh, no, basically no minorities in, in Corvallis, despite being a university town, but very much uh, a class-conscious town. Uh, with people with, you know, it was the haves and have-nots, the blue collar and the white collar. Hmm. Now, did this Doug Hamlin have a record of uh, assaults, or did he uh, get into a lot of fights? Did he, uh, you know, carry a gun? Like, what? what did, did he have uh, a, a temper or a violence? He had a temper, and he and he liked to drink a lot. I'm. Uh, he was a hunter. You know, a lot of these boys grew up hunting and fishing in Oregon. He uh, he'd he'd had some scrapes, mostly brawls. Uh, I don't remember. I don't think he had a, a police record per se, but he was known to the police like a lot of people were, and like 
like Dick was for for getting in fist fights. But uh, you know, in those days, like like they did, they they might arrive at police would arrive at the house or the bar and sort of you know uh, extinguish what was going on, and and that was that. And you could, in fact, escape arrest. Uh, but um, so he was he was known as a bit of a troublemaker and. Uh, and uh, and had had some some uh, wild years. Yeah. What, what what did the police think of 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 his motive? Did he did they have a a motive or an idea of why he would uh, um, kill this this younger younger kid? Well, there there really was no motive. I, you know, if Dick had had his car that night and hadn't ridden with him this wouldn't have happened. If Dick had gotten a different ride, this wouldn't have happened. It wasn't anything Doug Hamblin planned. But something happened in the car. Um, so Dick had had an altercation with somebody at the house where the party was going on. But it wasn't, it wasn't Doug. Dick had arrived drunk and then drank some more. And so his altercation wasn't with Doug. But... Uh, you know, what they surmised is that when, reportedly, uh, Dick wanted to be let off downtown and not have Doug Hamblin take him all the way home, which was south across the river, south of Corvallis, then uh, Dick wouldn't get out of the car. So the passenger side door was broken, and if somebody was in the passenger seat, they would have to be you know, slide across the bench seat of the car, if you remember bench seats. Well, at some point, Dick had moved from the back seat of the car when they were letting the other boys off. He'd moved to the front seat. And Doug told the police Dick wouldn't get out of the car, and he dragged him across the seat. But that, you know, that Dick was alive and well when he left him standing on the street corner. If, they, if he was pulling Dick out of the car and Dick didn't want to be pulled out, they must have gotten into a fist fight right then. And maybe by accident, Doug Hamblin put his arm and elbow around Dick's neck and into a chokehold. It's very likely it happened like that. Mm. Uh, I don't know if... if in 1967, would that be manslaughter charge rather than murder? But uh, it was a chokehold. And but you know, Dick also had bru- a lot of bruises around his eyes and uh, and on his throat. So there had been a good fight, and then he and then he died in a chokehold. Okay, so he died of the strangulation then, eh? Yes. Yes. Mm. Wow. That's crazy. So so now this has gone on and it's still officially a cold case. They've never prosecuted this, have they? They had never prosecuted it and the in you know in the 60s there just was the determination there wasn't you know enough enough evidence to make any arrest including Doug Hamblin. Uh, finally Dick's father had been cleared by a polygraph and everything, but you know it's really it's so fascinating to read police reports from those days because the detectives would go into the shoe repair shop and you know talk to Dick's 
father and stepmother, and, and they would get yelled at, you know, and they they wanted to be left alone. They weren't really. His father never, ever called the police once to ask, okay, what's going on with the investigation into my son's murder? What? Never once. And they finally took a polygraph, and, and he was cleared. Um, but uh, so Doug Hamblin, you know, came and went from Corvallis. He remarried a few times. Um, he, uh, he, you know, got into a little bit of trouble over the years. So then to fast forward, uh, it's, you know, considered a, uh, an unsolved case, a cold case. And uh, along about uh, 2012, it was assigned to a, to a new detective, a young cold case detective in Corrales, who looked at it, and he decided he could charge Doug Hamblin. You know, he was going to, after 50 years, uh, make an arrest. And then he found out that Doug Hamblin had just died. So he still wanted to find justice. He still wanted, you know, you can you can still pursue uh, a, 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 you know, you can still take it to a grand jury even if the suspect is dead. But uh, Benton County just decided that it wasn't worth it and there wasn't the money. And so I don't think it's anything giving giving anything to way, a way to say that the status of the case is now. It's called closed conditionally, meaning that on the death of the death suspect, it's been closed. But I think it's such a great story about how that took, you know, 50 years to to get to that. And um, what was it like to investigate a murder, in, you know, 50 years ago? It was so different from anything we see on television now or anything yeah. we read about. And these people, you know, this was a, they're all kinds of characters in this book. There's the, you know, there's the, the people who hosted the party and and what their lives were like and, and Dick's friends and the girlfriends he dated then. And, and, you know, we all grew up and he didn't get to. But, but um, I heard from hundreds of, of people when I started this book that they had never, ever forgotten him. And, of course, we were never told what happened. It was never printed that, well, we're suspending the investigation because it's not going anywhere. Or even in 2014, you know, the best suspect has died. We never knew a thing. So, if anything, that's what this book does. It it, it updates us about, you know, what whatever happened to this case and what happened to the the boy that we knew hmm. so what do you what do you want our people to get out of the book um, when they read it well I do think it's a very universal story I've been contacted by lots of people who said you know there was a kid in my school who died and we never found out what happened and it's also, you know, it's very much about a time and place. A, a college town in the late 1960s, when, as, as we discussed, the whole, the world was changing. And, and this murder, and it being unsolved, 
um, was 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 happening at the same time, and uh, you know there were students and that were, you know, we we graduated uh, late May, early June uh, of 1968 with uh, with this on, you know, every uh, with this was on our minds. But there were students that were leaving for Vietnam who came back. There were students who did not come back from Vietnam that were in my class. Um, there were uh, students I talked to who now can reveal, you know, what they were really like in high school and, and that they knew that they were gay and couldn't come out. And, and um, you know, the world was changing for us at exactly the moment that this happened. So our, our town changed, and we changed, partly because of this unsolved murder, partly just because America was, you know, uh, there were so many wars at home, as well as, you know, the infamous living room war in, in Vietnam. It, um, it's just a, just a really... There was just so much happening uh, around the the country. Um, And also, you know, they they thought, you know, his friend thought his death was ignored. And, uh, but, you know, I I found out it it wasn't. Hmm. It was such a dramatic... Yeah, yeah. well, thank God it's it's all stable and nothing's happening now. Everything's yeah, well, well put, well put, Al. <laughs> yeah, everything's boring now. We just all do nothing, yeah. so and there's no no living room battles anymore. <laughs> yeah, you know, crime wasn't. It was uh, again. I, I think it was rare in a lot of American towns, and uh, and now now it isn't. And we, you know, we we see it. We've learned a lot more about how. Crime is investigated, and uh, this was, you know, this murder was played out during, uh, you know, it was just a different time. And and frankly, um, you know, I've always had this view of Corbalis as very kind of idyllic. And what I found out doing the book is that it wasn't. You know, there were lots of people with uh, problems. There was lots of uh, class differentiation. Um, you know, people had secrets just like they they do now. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's just a different light. It, you know, a different time, but there were still people are people. You know, and uh, people are people. Yes. Yeah. It goes on small towns or big cities. It's just. Uh, I, I think we're more exposed to these things now, and the internet and everything just blew the world up. You know, it's sort of we realize who's living around us now more. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. You know, I have a quote at the front of the book from the music, I'm sorry, from the movie Pleasantville, the 1998 movie, oh, yeah. where, uh, you know, the, the teenagers are sort of trapped in the black and white uh, world of, of television in, in the 1950s. And, and uh, you know, that's, that's how I sort of always saw uh, Corvallis, is, is this. You know, but nothing is really truly idyllic. There's there's always something behind yeah. what you see. Yeah, 
Yeah, I think the idea of the small town, um, you know, being all all perfect is is just not really. Yeah. It's just it's just not real, but it's something we always thought, you know. It's um, it's what we thought. I had, uh, you know, I mean, it sounds like I was pretty naive, and I guess I was, but I had classmates tell me when I was working on the book that they couldn't wait to get out of Trevallis. They couldn't wait to move away. They couldn't wait to go to college. And, you know, their their hometown was not the same as mine. Mm. We saw it differently. Mm. And... I I have to say I never thought of that till I was working on this book that not everybody it, you know had the same uh, experience. In, oh yeah, not everybody I mean, has the same experience in their own hometown. No, actually, and it's true. I I think that um, we just take it for granted that everyone. Um, sees things the same and and feels the same, but um, especially back then because we weren't connected in in you know other than your friends and the people around you didn't you didn't find out what they they thought you know um, yeah. you know now everybody sees it on Facebook of course <laughs> and they're friending and unfriending each other and fighting because they didn't realize that um, huh? it's a different world you know. It is a different world, and, you know, I, I learned that, you know, even in the 1960s, there were uh, parts of uh, Corvallis, especially the outskirts, and there was, you know, it's a big farming community, too, but there were still, still a lot of homes without houses into the 1960s, and meanwhile, my parents' friends, who were, you know, one family, wealthy, wealthy physician, I remember we, we went to their house uh, for uh, you know, a Christmas party once, and they showed us their bomb shelter they were building. Uh, you know, it's just a. Yeah. Were extremes. Yeah, yeah. But that's what, you know, there's always a common fear. I think that people nowadays, they you know, especially the young ones born in the 90s and 2000s here, they're not going to have a clue how we lived back then about the. Um, you know the, the 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 drills about you know under your desk or running down to the to the bomb shelter and all that. Uh, yeah. People don't have you know it's just it's crazy. You know nowadays even even the people there's there's not a person in 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 uh, grade school that was alive during the nine eleven. Yes, and and um, you know now they're having. Um, Shooting drills instead of duck and cover drills. <laughs> they're they're drills to prepare for a school shooting. You, um, you know, it's crazy. I, you know, and and guns or no guns. I just um, even without getting into the politics, we have to wonder why uh, the gun shootings in schools is so um, it's so. Um, prevalent in in the US as compared to all the other countries. Yes, as we know, this is it's really uh, it's really an American Yeah. It's something, something in the culture. There's something going on in the US that we have these mass shootings. I mean, uh, you know, uh, you would still have them in other countries like like the Canada and like the UK or Australia and, and they have them but not not one every day. 
So there's something born in the culture. That, that, I always question that. And I don't, you know, not even talking about gun legislation or anything like that. It's just kind of you have to wonder what what draws people to do that. And yeah, and I do think. Uh, I mean, I've written some about uh, about about school shootings. We had one in uh, Washington State in 1996. The boy was 14, and he actually pre you know Colum the Columbine kids copied him essentially and he was one of uh, uh, the young people he was sentenced to life without parole uh, he was actually 16 by the time he was sentenced but then he just got a new a new sentence because the U.S. Supreme Court said that's you know cruel and unusual punishment to give a a minor a mm. life sentence uh, so instead he's serving you know a, few, a couple hundred years. But uh, 2,000 uh, young people who were uh, sentenced when they were minors have, have gotten new sentences. Uh, but it, there's something about, you know, the, the, the copycat. Uh, I think, think they realize they're going to be, they're going to become well-known for, you know, yeah. a few weeks, a few months. Yeah. Um, but I believe home ownership of guns in America is, is uh, out, you know, exceeds any other country. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, there's no doubt, and and it, it, it definitely the axis of the guns there, you know, and that's that's the first problem, yeah. you know. Period. I mean, people can say what they want, but yeah. the, the you know, it just uh, when you have someone that's unstable for whatever the reason, and they're going to do something like that, having access to guns. Um, it makes it easier to plan something like that rather than if you didn't have the guns. So you know, it just—it's common sense. But yeah, you know, it, it everything, is, and it's, everything's just gone crazy. It's obviously fatigue, suicide, yeah, uh, rape. Uh, but this—the uh, boy I'm talking about, Barry uh, Lukaitis in Washington State. Um, you know, he was the last child at home. His parents were in a terribly messy divorce, still living together. And they had guns, and they were hiding the guns from each other, his parents. <laughs> and it was just, it yeah. was, you know, I, it was just uh, insane. I think it's possible to feel, you know, some, uh, sympathy for the, the kids who, who... Yeah. Yeah, I know. You, you know, it's funny. It's not funny, but it's strange how uh, back in, in even the days when, when this murder in hometown happened and, and the 70s and stuff, do you remember the, the shootings were always in post offices? Remember everybody would go post Oh, I do. I you know do remember that. Yeah. yeah, the work and the beginning of work, really workplace shootings. Yeah, yeah and it kind of moved from that into the schools. Because um, workplaces began to have more security, I'm sure. I mean, I worked at places. I was in New York for a number of years, and this is a couple decades ago, but, boy, you it was really tight security, and I, I believe it is in a lot of places now. They, workplace violence still happens, but, but it has moved to schools. Yeah. Well, it's funny because I said that to some uh, some younger people about you know everything. Uh, someone's gone postal, and they're all looking at me like, "What does that?" He didn't. Mean? Know. <laughs> they're like, what, "What does that mean?" Um, we could do a trivia book about uh, phrases that are no longer. Yeah, yeah, because it just yeah. means nothing. Um, uh, they have no idea. They, 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 well, and I they? think part of the 
that uh, interest in that I have in, in Kitchell's murder is that there was no there's no there were no guns there was no uh, what today uh, you know we we just had three shootings in downtown Seattle in a 24 hour period two weeks ago the same block um, and one of them considered a mass shooting eight people shot one one died yeah. um, that you know this there's not much mystery to a crime like that yeah you know. I, yeah. I always like, you know, if you're going to spend two, three, four years on a book, you know, there needs to be some sort of mystery. Yeah, there's got to be more to it. Now, um, do you, are you, what are you working on now? Because this book's already been published and it's out. Yes, um, it's been out for years. And I've just finished a book, uh, I think a lot of people will know about this case, about uh, Kyron Horman, who was a seven-year-old. That and disappeared from his uh, rural grade school near Portland, Oregon, uh, nine and a half years ago. They, uh, he was living with his father and his stepmother, and his stepmother is certainly uh, a suspect. She's never been officially named a suspect. It's he has not been found. There's never been uh, a charge or uh, any uh, adjudication in this case. It's an open case. I uh, worked with his uh, mother, interviewed her, you know, hundreds of hours over the last few years. So uh, it'll be the first book about Kyron Horman. You know, and publishers don't always like case, open cases. But yeah. I think readers do. I think they want to know more. Yeah. I think the book will make news because, you know, there's a lot that, uh, that people don't know about the case. And so it's a, it's a pretty big story in the West, but it actually has been revisited over and over by, you know, Dr. Phil and Dateline and 2020 and uh, Nancy Grace. National attention. So that'll be a few months. Fantastic. Now, do you have a website that people can go to? to, uh, I do. And I would love to hear from people. And there's a way to email me on the website, too. So it's Rebecca, middle initial T, Morris, Dot com. Rebecca T. Morris, M-O-R-R-I-S.com. Fantastic. And on Facebook. I love to meet people on Facebook. Oh, dangerous. Um, <laughs> 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 well, uh, now we're going to have that up on the website, and we'll have your book up there so people listening can just go one click and pick up the That's book. Great. And uh, it's been a pleasure. Um, Our guest has been Rebecca Morris, and the book we've been talking about is called A Murder in My Hometown. Thank you for being on the show. Well, thank you so much, Al. I really love talking to you. To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. The end! By George, he's got it! It is the end! I'll say it! If you're lying to me, I'll be back. This has been a production of Something Weird Media.